0: Father, thank you for this wonderful evening. Thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for these amazing people. Thank you for our pastors, for Pastor Philip and Pastor Cheryl and Pastor Jennifer, and for the members of this specific body that can't be with us this evening. We thank you, God, for them. We thank you, God, for the people who are here. We thank you for the hungry hearts that are coming in who don't even know about us yet. We thank you uh, that you will unveil, unfold, reveal your word to us tonight. Thank you, God. You are a holy God. You are an awesome God. You are a good God. We love you, Father. We thank you, Father. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Ghost that's in us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So there are uh, a couple of things that have been burning on my heart and things that I want to share uh, this evening. And the two topics are expectation and cognitive dissonance. I think there's probably a way to blend those together, so I'm going to do that. Let's see where it takes us. Thank you, God, as He guides us, leads us. Uh, we're going to start with Jeremiah twenty-nine, eleven. All oh, y'all can probably do that from memory. Terry, do you have Jeremiah twenty-nine, eleven? Awesome. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord: thoughts of peace and not evil to give you an expected end. So I want to talk about expectation there. The word expectation is tikvah, just in case you want to look that up in the Hebrew. And it doesn't mean what we think it means originally. The actual definition of tikvah is a cord, like a rope. And it was first mentioned in, I believe it's Joshua 2, when Rahab lets the two spies die down by the rope, that rope, the cord is tikva. I think that's probably where it got its new definition from that original word, because it is first, u- yeah, sorry, Terry, Joshua 2.18. It was first used as the scarlet thread that Rahab, she used it to let the spies down. She hung it out her window. That's probably how it got its meaning. But she said to the spies, the expectation was she saved their lives, and she wanted to be spared. All the people of Jericho knew that God was with the Israelites. They knew they were going to die. If you read that in Joshua 2, you, you can see it. They knew what happened to the Red Sea. They knew the cross, the Red Sea. They knew they had no chance to stand against them. They knew their walls weren't going to be enough to protect them. So she said, after she protected the spies, she said, save my father's household. Save me, my father, my mother, my sisters, all of, all of those people. And they said, your life for ours. So her expectation was she would be saved by them because she saved them. The word is often translated hope. So you, you can see a lot of that in Job. Uh, Job six eight says, Oh, that I may have my request that God would grant me the thing that I long for. The thing that I long for is also expectation. All throughout the Old Testament, there's always hope. There's expectation. We're expecting things from God. There's also there's that positive expectation. There's also a negative expectation. That's where Luke twenty one twenty-six says men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Looking after there is the same word. It's the Greek version, but the same word is expectation. Looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. So it's still an expectation of the things God's gonna do, but it is not a positive expectation. Another version of expectation is Acts 3 5, when the lame man at the gate looks up at Peter and he said he gave heed to them, expecting to receive something of them. So there was an expectation there. So we have two types of expectations they are godly expectations and human expectations. One of them leads to life, the other one leads often to disappointment. So a fundamental part of being a human, or really anything with sentience is building a framework of expectation. If you throw a rock up in the air, you expect it to fall down. If you throw it over your head, you're going to expect it to land on your head. We understand that as adults. A baby probably can't throw something, but a baby isn't going to understand that right away. And a child who's just learning to throw things in the air may throw it in the air and it lands on its head and would end up crying because of it not fully expecting that what comes, goes up must come down. But as we develop expectation, we begin to not stand under the thing that's falling. We understand not to touch things that are hot. We understand that if we want to survive in the world, that we would do the things that would help us survive. So it's vital to physical survival. We have expectations. But it's also vital to social survival that we develop a framework of expectation. And that one is more complex and it's always changing. But if you want to have friends, it's probably a good idea not to be a jerk. It's also a good idea not to steal from them. And it's a good idea to shower. It's also a good idea not to be judgmental of your friends. It's it's a good idea not to be judge- judgmental to them, but you also hold up a mirror of truth. If you're actually a good friend, you're going to do that, and people are going to seek you out. Those are all examples of being self-aware. Self-aware and selfishness are two completely different things. They have really nothing to do with each other. Self-aware is knowing who you are. Selfishness is wanting things from other people. And that's one of the major problems with expectations. That's the the big problem with expectation. It's building up an expectation of the way you think life is going to turn out, especially if there are other people involved, and those other people may have no idea what you're expecting of them. It's a surefire way to live a life of disappointment. Can you expect people to do things? Yeah, if you communicate to them. Rahab expected the spies to let her live, and you should lay out expectations for your children, for your families, for your co-workers, for your subordinates if you're in charge at a place, and you should live up to the expectations people have communicated to you. But you can't expect someone to change their insides. You have to... (laughs) actually Cheryl has the greatest example of this. When she talked about Spencer snoring, she didn't want to deal with snoring. So your your first approach was saying like you, God, you have to change his snoring. But then God said to you, how about you ask me to change you? Yeah. So that's what happened. God didn't go out and say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to force Spencer to stop snoring. He said, sorry to bring you up and put this on the podcast. He changed the person who had the problem, not the problem. That can be a big problem for us if we go out in life expecting somebody else to do the changing instead of us doing the changing. If you're doing that kind of expectation, you're always going to be disappointed because nobody's going to live up to the ideal. God's not a man that he should lie, which means that anybody else could. Anybody else can let you down. God's never going to let you down. And that is misplaced expectations. It often leads to sorrow. And really, it leads to cognitive dissonance, which I will transfer over to my other set of notes. Pastors talked a lot about cognitive dissonance. Do we have a grasp of what that really means? I'm seeing some faces, maybe. Actually, <laughs> so I'm seeing no, not much reaction at all. You're more than welcome to react. You can just get up and shout if you want. Cognitive dissonance is basically holding two or more opposing views at the same time in your head. It was first put out there by a guy named Leon Festinger. Uh, He's the father of the theory, he was a psychologist. This came up in the 1950s. Um, But he just observed what was already there but gave it the title, Cognitive Dissonance. And it's when people are thinking things are one way and they're observing them to be another way and then there's a fight on the inside. But there are there's a little bit more depth to that as well. Some of the cognitive dissonance is self-inflicted from behavior. For example, if you are a smoker, which none of you should be for your own sake, but if you're a smoker, you continue to smoke even though everybody knows that smoking is bad. People continue to smoke. New people pick it up every day. But everybody knows it's a bad thing. You know, drugs are a bad thing, but people continue to do them because they're seeking out Generally, short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term success. But they know what's wrong, so they're holding these two opposing viewpoints in, in their head at the same time. That's one example of cognitive dissonance. Another example is forced compliance behavior. And that's when you're forced to do something in public that you don't want to do on your insides, and then there's a dissonance created between that cognition, the I, I don't want to do this, and the behavior, I had to do this. If you're in a job, you're going to have opportunities when the boss tells you, no, you need to do this right now. And even if you're, everything in you says, I don't want to do this, you're going to do that because that's that's what you were hired to do, within reason, not not illegal, not ungodly. But if you are raising your hands during praise and worship, and I'm not judging, I'm not angry. If you're raising your hands during praise and worship because you see everybody else around you raising their hands during praise and worship— and you're not raising your hands and praise and worship on the inside, that's an example of cognitive dissonance, and it's not going to build you up. I'm not saying don't raise your hands. I'm saying your spirit wants to raise your hands, so if you can get in there and actually listen with your spirit, you're going to praise and worship. But if you're doing it just to look like everybody else, that is forced compliance behavior, like the social pressure of looking that way or the social pressure of looking anyway in any situation. Uh, There's another Aspect of that, which is decision-making, and I'm getting back to the Bible, I promise, which is when you make a decision that cuts out the possibility that you can have the other thing that you decided against. For example, if you were given a job in Hawaii, if somebody offered you double what you're making now to work in Hawaii 20 hours a week and live on the beach, sounds like a great thing, you would have to give up everything you have here your friends, your church, your house. So if those things weigh as much as Hawaii would weigh to you, then you have and you have to make a decision one way or the other, you're going to face some sort of dissonance. And what people typically do in that situation is downplay the thing they didn't choose. So, oh, you know, Hawaii wouldn't have been that great anyway. It's it's hot there. There are bugs. Too many tourists. Or they go to Hawaii and say, you know, this is the life. I don't miss anybody back home. All I ever want to do is live on the beach. People make that up. The fourth and final category is effort justification. And that is, I'm going to read the actual definition here, which is a dissonance between the amount of effort exerted into achieving a goal or completing a task and the subjective reward for that effort. So if you if you did a Spartan race, do you all know what Spartan races are? Where people run, climb over stuff, sweat a whole bunch, and they paid $100 to do it. And at the end, you get a t-shirt. That t-shirt isn't worth anything by itself. But you getting that t-shirt feels like it's worth something to you because you put in all of the effort to get there. You did months of training. You accomplished this great feat. But in reality, it's not worth anything. None none of that's really worth anything. It's also the same theory behind Bitcoin. I wish I had Seth or Jake here because I'd talk to them about that right now. The whole idea behind cryptocurrency is there's nothing backing up nothing, but somehow people think it's valuable because of the effort it takes to get it. Bitcoin in particular is an algorithm that creates Bitcoin. Each time it does, it takes longer and longer and longer to create it. So they become increasingly more difficult to achieve. So it's it's not really worth anything except the effort of putting into it and that people have placed value on it. Festinger, the guy who came up with this, said, the general principle of this seems that people come to believe in and love the things that they have to suffer for. Studies have actually shown that when you have a strong enough cognitive dissonance, it creates an actual physical discomfort. Not, not just mental, but there's, you know, churning of your stomach, headaches, things like that. Actual physical discomfort comes from trying to hold two strongly opposing views in your head. So if it becomes painful enough, it becomes uncomfortable enough, you actually seek out a way to change it. You can, number one, change your behavior. If you're a smoker, you stop smoking. Might be hard, but you change that on the outside. Or if you're being forced to comply to something you disagree with, you say, I'm not going to do this anymore at the risk of losing my job or whatever standing you have. You say, No, I'm going to stand up for what I actually believe in. You relieve yourself of that dissonance. People often, though, trivialize the inconsistency, they know that smoking kills. But it doesn't kill everybody. In fact, it probably doesn't kill most people. So statistically, chances are you could continue smoking and not die from it. So you downplay, well, yeah, there's a risk, but not as much as everybody says. The number three thing there is you run away. I think this is the fundamental reason most people leave this church. I don't think just this church. I think people leave any kind of situation because of it. But I think the major reason they leave this church is that you can you could really distill every single message that's ever been preached at this church for the last 40 years to the calling, pastor's calling, which is to cause God's people to rise up and take the rightful place in the body of Christ. Everything that's ever been said here is focused on that goal. So, whether it be Collier or Pastor or Miss Mavis or Miss Cindy or Michael or anybody who's ever stood up here, that goal is to cause cause people to rise up. you can 't ever stay where you are and rise up so there's never going to be in this body of believers there's never going to be an opportunity to finally arrive and think you're there and stay exactly where you are, things are going to change. They're going to continue to change. We're going to get continue to be more and more free. We're going to continue to get rid of the religious things we held on to because we all had them. We've all had tons of religious things, more than we possibly even imagined. But every time they're exposed, we are given the opportunity to either let go of that idea or let it build up or or let it build up so much tension that you decide to leave our spirits want cognitive consistency our spirits want our minds we have to renew our minds by the word of god our spirits want our minds to line up with what's going on inside our spirits so john 8:32 says and ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free so truth equals freedom. The more truth we get, the more freedom we have. Freedom always costs something. There's nothing free in freedom. And the greater the freedom, the higher the cost. So we could think of that on national terms. The Revolutionary War, we earned freedom from tyranny. The Civil War earned freedom from slavery, and it took bloodshed. It took way more than it should have but it took bloodshed. Jesus earned our freedom from sin and death by having all of the wrath of sin poured out on him. The ultimate price he paid for us to achieve cognitive consistency individually. It is going to cost you something. You are going to have to give up what you thought was right in order to get what is actually right. Sometimes that's painful because you've held on to ideas strongly. If someone died and it was painful for you, and the way you got past that pain, the way you masked that pain, the way you got over it, was to believe that God took that person home. The minute you find out that God doesn't take people home that way, you are faced with that cognitive dissonance. This is the the core of sovereignty. But you're faced with that cognitive dissonance. Are you going to hold on to the thing that brought you some sort of comfort? Or are you going to let go your comfort and get a hold of the actual truth, which is the only way to be free, which is the only way you're actually going to get past the thing rather than continually masking it? God doesn't take people home. That same thing is going to come up over and over and over again. It might be painful to let it go. It might be painful to have to communicate to someone who you love to tell them this is what you have to do to let it go. And a lot of people aren't willing to let that go, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be telling them, and that doesn't, there's no way for us to know who would or wouldn't. And each time you plant a seed, there's opportunity for them to get more and more free. The question is, how much do you want freedom? So this might be the first time anyone's ever quoted Nietzsche from the pulpit here. He said, The strength of a person's spirit is measured by how much truth he can tolerate. Or more precisely, and this guy didn't have truth. He didn't believe in God. He didn't. <laughs> so he's kind of exposing himself here. But he said, How much truth you can tolerate, or more precisely, to what extent you need to have truth diluted, disguised, sweetened, muted, and falsified. We think we're beyond that, but any kind of little hint of religion, any kind of thing that doesn't line up with the truth of the revelation of the Word of God is those things. It's a dilution of truth. Sometimes it takes great effort in the face of everybody to get that truth. Some people have gone all the way deep down into the depths of the Word of God where they don't have anyone else telling them this is... This is how you should do it. They're digging in for themselves over and over again. And get a hold of a truth that when you present it, that people may not accept that truth because they're not there where you are. But if you dig down deep, you may, it may be a lonely path for a while until people start to get the truth uh, with you. So you, you have to get rid of—it might be a pain that your friends would reject what you know is true. It might be difficult for you to do that, and it might take a long time or may never happen that those people would grab a hold of the truth. But that's where I want to talk about Paul. And and Terry, I'm going to go to Acts 9. Saul of Tarsus, Paul thought he was right. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. So he so much believed in what he was doing. He consented to the murder of Stephen. He so much believed in what he was doing that he went to the high priest, and it's, you know, right after the stoning of Stephen, which we now know was right at a year after uh, the resurrection of Jesus. There's probably the same high priest that handed Jesus over to the Romans. So Paul goes to him, Saul, goes to him and says, hey, I want to arrest everybody, and drag them back to Jerusalem. What are you going to do in Jerusalem except the same thing that they just did to Stephen? So he was wanted to go around seeking anybody out who believed in Jesus and have them killed. But in just three verses, Paul was faced with a brand new view of everything. So he sees the light from heaven. You can go on to the next verse. He falls to the earth. He hears the voice of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? And then in the next verse, he says, uh, I guess it's four verses now that I'm thinking about it. He says, well, who are you? Jesus says, it's me. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. The pricks were ways to get oxen to move. They were sharp sticks and they kept the oxen moving in the right direction. That's what a those pricks are, so it 's hard it 's hard to kick against them because the truth is coming up behind you, and you don 't want to go against it but in verse six here, Paul had spent all of his time breathing out these threats. he had raised himself up in the religious circles he studied under was it Gamaliel Gamaliel, whatever however you would say his name and he he' studied under him, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees that was a religious and political class. He probably had his sights on something high up there. And in this one verse, he said, Lord, what will you have me do? That's it. He abandoned everything he'd ever known in one one phrase, one verse. He gave up all of his ambition to say, I now know you're real. I now I'm going after this with all of everything that I have. And so he did. And it cost him everything to give us the revelation of this mystery. In 2 Corinthians 11:24 through 28 he says he, t- he recounts some of the things that happened to him. He said of the Jews five times I received 40 stripes save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. "...in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things which are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches." So he faced physical and spiritual attacks everywhere he went to bring us this message. And in the end, it says, you know, people abandoned him. Most everybody abandoned him, everybody he'd spent his life pouring into. But those letters made it all the way to us. It didn't stop, no matter what they did. Paul was probably killed by, you know, it's not in the Bible, but traditionally, they believe he was executed in Rome. I think Nero was the emperor at the time. And he lost everything that was natural, everything he'd ever tried for uh, before that to get a hold of the truth. And I'm not saying it's going to take us that same thing, but I'm not saying it's not. You have to give up everything The bottom line is you're going to have to give up everything to get total truth. You have to give up all of everything you've ever desired that's outside of the truth to get that total truth. I'm not saying give up your family, but I am saying that you do have to, if you really want the things of God, if you really want the truth, if you're hungry enough for the truth, you're going to give up everything. This year at Grace Christian Center 2019 has been a year of exposing cognitive dissonance. And it's been a year of religion versus revelation. We had religious training, not more than Paul had, but he got rid of his, and we have to do the same thing. We have to be willing to give up everything, everything that we think is truth in order to grab a hold of the actual truth. The Bible is true. That's our uncompromising foundation. There's no way around that. You can't go outside of the Word of God being true, or all of this is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. The uh, The word has to be the foundation. And it is, and we believe it. But we have to seek out the real truth in the Bible for ourselves. Pastor said it Sunday, he can't do it for you. He can't do your seeking because revelation doesn't come that way. That's just information. When it comes down to it, that's just religion. Religion is hearing what somebody else says and saying, oh, I'm going to do what they say. Religion is when someone tells you to raise your hands, you raise your hands. When it's revelation, no one tells you to raise your hands. When it's revelation, no one can take it away from you, no matter who is saying anything against it. It doesn't matter if an entire religious organization, if everybody in here didn't have the revelation that somebody, one person in here had. That one person has, can stand on that revelation and allow that revelation to guide them. That revelation always comes from the Word by the Holy Spirit. It's never going to be outside of the Word, and it's never going to be without the Holy Spirit. And you're not going to get it just by hoping either. You're going to have to dig into the Word of God yourself. You're going to have to get in there. You're going to have to spend actual time I don't think there's any way around spending actual time, and I don't mean an hour here every morning. It's not not that. It is 24 hours a day in that mindset, in that frame of my God is good. My God wants to reveal things to me. My God loves me. I'm going to always be seeking out no matter what I'm doing, no matter if I'm doing my job, I'm mowing my lawn, I'm getting my oil changed, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're always in that mindset of God is good and He can reveal things to me, He's going to be doing that. You also have to spend the physical time of the Word. You have to know what the Word of God says, because if the Holy Ghost revealed something to you that you didn't know was in the Word, how, how could you verify? Pastor can't do that revelation for you. Uh, Religious acceptance is going to lead to cognitive dissonance every time. At some point, you will be forced to resolve the dissonance by either externally modifying your behavior or trivializing the inconsistency or running away or actually changing your belief. And that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do with communion. We can't hold on to... Communion is not going to hurt you, but you can't hold on to communion that it's some ritual you need. You can't hold on to water baptism that it's some ritual you need and have the full freedom in Christ. When we we realize that all we have to do is believe and confess, that's it to get in. We don't need these things. We can't lose our salvation by doing communion the wrong way. It takes giving up. And, you know, if that was a big part of your life, it's going to be more painful. If it wasn't much of a part of your life, it's going to be less painful. But each time it comes up, whatever it is, you're going to you're going to have something you think is right, and you're eventually going to have to let it go when you're faced with the actual truth. Only one of those things that I just mentioned can actually end descendants, and that's changing your belief. Proverbs 1, 30 and 31, talk about wisdom, saying, They would none of my counsel. They despised my repute, my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Do you want to eat of your own fruit or do you want to eat of the fruit of God? Your own fruit is not going to be nearly as good. You can make it through life, but do you want to just make it through life? The pathway to be completely who you are is only through the truth. God made you individually, God made you unique. God gave you desires in your heart that he's never given to anybody else. In the whole history of mankind, not just the people who are on the planet and right now, nobody's ever been the same. There aren't. There's no repeats. There's no reincarnation. There's no the same thing over and over again. God tailored <laughs> desires to you individually. And not that we're robots, not that we're, you know, NPCs. We are able to make our own choices, make our own decisions, let our own desires rise up. I think, it's a, I think David desired Jerusalem. It was the desire of David to have that city conquered, and then he did. You know, God gave him the desire of his heart. We have those desires. We have the unique desires. We can't achieve the, the total freedom, the total truth, the total ability to be who you are. And who you are is something, I'll just say, who everybody in this room, who you are is something way more than what you are right now. There's no limits to what he can do through each person in this room. It doesn't matter if you're 8 or 80. I don't see anybody who's 8 in here. It doesn't matter where you are in between. There's still plenty of time and until Jesus gets back. We should be continually pressing in more and more deeper and deeper and not being afraid of what people would think, not being afraid of messing up. You don't learn anything by getting it right Every time you don't learn that a rock lands on your head until you see a rock thrown up in the air and falls and doesn't have to fall on your head, but you, you have to actually put in the effort and make a mistake, boldly make a mistake, jump up and shout in the middle of the service when something is in your heart to shout. That's not a mistake. That's the Holy Ghost in you. You're never going to get in trouble for that. You're never going to get in trouble if you press in in the things of the Holy Ghost. I think I've, I've observed, I've only been here 15 years, but I've observed a lot of fear of we don't want to mess up and get called out by the pastors for doing something wrong. I have it all the time. When I choose, when I choose songs, anytime there's a lyric that doesn't line up and, and our, we get called out for a lyric... I'm not offended. I'm not upset. I used to be. I learned how not to be. I used to be upset that, oh, I messed up. I'm going after it boldly. And if I mess up, I'm, I say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, if that word is wrong. Thank you, God, if, if that entire song is wrong. Thank you, God. I'm getting it writer and righter and righter every time. And you just let everything go. Paul said he pressed on. He forgot everything that was behind and he pressed on to what was ahead. That's what we have to do. That's what we have to do to achieve the actual freedom. It's the truth that sets you free. But truth also destroys everything in you that isn't truth. And I don't know why this line is here, but I'm going to go with it. Revelation earns you the right to use the ideas that you've heard. There was that group of guys who tried to cast out demons in Jesus' name, and the sons of Sheba, seven sons of Sheba, and those seven sons tried to do what other people, what the disciples, what the apostles were doing, and instead they got stripped naked and run out because it wasn't from a position of revelation. It was they heard something and they went and tried to do it. That same thing is true with healing. That same thing is true with abundance. That same thing is true with any of the promises of God. If you don't have them in you for yourself and you're trying to base it on somebody else's revelation, you're not going to get it. Pastor Jennifer said the other day that, uh, it was a few months ago now, but I just heard it again the other day, that the good Christian life is the caboose. It's not, you can't steer with the caboose. The caboose is the evidence of where the engine is going and where the engine has been. So you can't steer from behind, and steering from behind is the same thing as operating on information, not revelation. So just, I'm going to go back a little bit to expectation because I think that's where I am. Misplaced expectation. Can we talk about that again? That's part of cognitive dissonance is you're expecting... Pastor Cheryl expects Pastor Philip to pick up his socks, and she's told him over and over and over and over and over again to pick up his socks. That is not a misplaced expectation. That's a proper expectation because that's been the communication, and I'm sure he's agreed to it and then doesn't do it. I haven't heard that in a few years, so maybe he's doing it really well now. Praise God. But if you get mad at somebody... For not picking up their socks, and you've never told them to pick up your socks, or you've held it inside, like going oh, on there or pick up their socks, and that you don't let it out, you don't communicate to that person, you're going to <laughs> have an expectation that you will, and you will always be disappointed by that expectation. Socks is an easy way to say that, but on any level, if you have the wrong expectation, you're going to only ever be upset at that person. Stop expecting people to do things the way you would want them done. It glues you to a path that nobody's on. They're not on it. You're not on it, even though you're trying to force everybody to do it. There's no point in lamenting over it. There's no point in crying over it. There's no benefit in, woe is me. Why won't they do these things the way that I know is the right way to do it? It's okay to be sad if something doesn't go the way you were hoping to, but you can't stay in the sad. You go through the sad. You don't stay there. You pick yourself up, you move forward. The less you expect of other people, the easier it is to keep your own insides healthy. Nobody owes you anything. If you go through life thinking people owe you something, you're always going to be sad. Nobody owes you anything. Jesus already paid for everything, so nobody has anything to owe. Does that mean we shouldn't expect anything of anybody? No, of course not. We should expect, like Rahab did, she expected to be saved because the spies told her, you're going to be saved. We should expect that anything is communicated to us that the person's going to follow through. And then also be the person who follows through. That helps. Continue to grow every day. Don't stop growing every single day. Don't stop getting rid of the stuff that you don't, that's not great about you. Just get rid of it. Don't judge yourself in a negative way. Jesus already paid for it. Can't cry over yourself either. Just move forward. Who can you expect things from? The answer, of course, is God. Romans 8.19 says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. That earnest expectation is all of creation crying out, hungry for the manifestation, because the manifestation of the sons of God is what's been promised. And Psalm 62.5, I think it's David saying, My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. And that's really the answer. Philippians 1.20 says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or death. God expects us to expect him to follow through with what he said. He doesn't ever not follow through. He always follows through on everything he said. People will probably let you down. God won't. God's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. He's spoken it, and he makes it good. That's Numbers 23, 19, if you want to write it down. And 2 Corinthians 1, 3 says he is the God of all comfort. So even if you are sad about the way you've interacted with somebody, he's there to comfort you. God is good. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And then I want to read Psalm 145. I think it's the first 10 verses, which is a psalm of praise. David says, I will extol thee, my God, O King. I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day I will bless thee. This is practical advice. This is what we do. And I will praise your name, thy name, forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty, and of thy wondrous works, and men shall speak of the might of thy terrible, that doesn't mean bad, it means great, acts. And I will declare thy greatness." They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. If we spent our time praising God, if we spent our time dwelling on the goodness of God, uh, I was listening to a, a speech, really about it was about cognitive dissonance, sort of. And the psychologist who was giving the presentation, Jordan Peterson, is his name. Um, You've probably heard of him, maybe. Was talking about some of his students. He was going through and said, "Well, how much how much time do you waste every day?" And I was interested. Because I, I try to put it through my own my own mind, like how much time do I watch YouTube, which is what I was doing listening to this, or how much time do you watch TV? How much time do you just play around? I don't mean rest, I don't mean relax, because those are necessary things. But how much time do you spend your wheels on things that like you don't even really want to do? At the end of it, you're like, why why did I just spend thirty minutes watching that? Why did I why was I on Facebook for forty five minutes in a row here? None of that makes sense. How much time do you actually waste? every day and when he did that uh it was anecdotal, but when he did that study, he found that the average student was wasting somewhere around six hours every day, which is a gigantic number. Now they were students, they didn't have jobs outside of the class, so they may have had a little bit more time to do that. But they had they were neglecting study to spend their time. <laughs> Doing nothing. Well, he worked out the details, and this is in Canadian dollars because he's Canadian. But he figured out that the average, by doing that six hours a day every day, worked out to the equivalent of roughly fifty thousand dollars a year Canadian money of unproductivity. If they'd put that towards, if they if they'd worked a job worthy of their hire, those same amount of hours, that's how much they would have earned. Nobody's ever going to do that. Um, But the idea of how much time you actually waste, I would say do an honest evaluation of yourself. See see what you're doing, spending your time. I, I do them of myself as well. The time you have to spend pursuing the things of God and time you have to spend letting go of mistruths is going to hugely benefit you long term. I think Facebook and smoking are sort of the same thing says the guy who does social media for the church. So I want to give a little practical advice at the end. Uh, We're just about done here. And that is practical advice, what you do when people have disappointed you, if you had expectations that they didn't meet. And the practical advice, I'm going to go through it too fast, probably, Terry, but I'll mention them all. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3 says... I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So, living a life of peace by praying for all men is good. Romans one eight says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, I thank my God always for you. Philippians 1.3 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Colossians 1.3 says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Praying always for you. First Thessalonians 1-2 says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Are so you seeing a pattern? Second Thessalonians says, one three says, We are bound to thank God always for you. 2 Timothy 1-3 says, I thank God, whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have a remembrance of thee in my prayers day and night. Philemon 1.4 says, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers. This is what we do. We pray for people. There's not anybody that's left out of that praying. If you have someone that has not lived up to your expectations, lift them up. Thank God for them. Pray for them, but don't pray for them to change. Don't pray for them to stop snoring. Lift them up. Pray for them. Ask God to show you areas to change. He's going to. He's going to lead you and guide you into all truth. Don't expect other people to change, but expect yourself to do the change. And spend most of your time not praying about you. It's easy to get really self-focused, but pray for others. Lift them up. Lift up the members of this body. If you're not lifting up the members of this body on a regular basis, you're doing, you're doing yourself a disservice, you're doing this body a disservice. If you're not praying for our pastors every day, there's no shame. There's no condemnation, but shame on you. Lift them up every day every day because they're pioneering this work still 40 years in and and don't have a lot of people on their side right now in this not not there aren't a lot of people that are rightly dividing the word and leading the life of the spirit what you should spend your time on is spend your time on the goodness of God there are a lot of in him prayers and you have two options within him or a lot of in him verses, I should say, not necessarily prayers. You have two options within him. You can say, I am this in him, or you can say, I am this in him. Where are you going to put the focus? Are you going to put it on yourself or are you going to put it on God? If you put the focus on God, he's going to lead you and guide you into all truth. If you put the focus on yourself, you're going to hinder yourself. And it's going to take a lot more effort to get you free. I know it's just about over. We really don't have a lot of time. I want to make sure I'm honoring and staying towards an hour, but can we all just stand up and let's just praise God for a minute out of your heart. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Don't live in cognitive dissonance. Let's just praise God. Praise you, Father. We thank you,
1: God. We thank you, 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 God, for the revelation of your word. We thank you, God, for your Power. We thank you, God, for your goodness. We thank you, God, for your goodness. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy of praise. You're worthy of glory and honor. We honor you, God. We praise 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 you, God. Hallelujah! Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. Thank you, God. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. Hallelujah. Thank you, 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 God. Thank you, God, thank you, God. God. Your mercy endures forever. Your goodness forever. Thank you, God. You are good. You are good. You are good. You're worthy, worthy, worthy of praise, worthy of honor and glory. Thank Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God hallelujah hallelujah hallelujah, 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 hallelujah hmm. thank, you, thank you God, thank you God, thank you God, thank you God, hallelujah, every day,
0: praise him every day, worship him every day, hallelujah
2: It's made us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just remain standing and continue just to worship him. Express your thankfulness to him because we should be thankful people. Our prayers are prayers of thanksgiving and honor. That's what we are in Him, what He's given unto us, and we return unto Him that thanksgiving and that praise and the love. And we should always be practicing His presence. Practice His presence in the things we say. Practice His presence in the Thanksgiving. Thank Him for truth. Thank Him for revealed truth. Thank Him for increase in knowledge. Thank Him for more revelation. Thank him for unveiling and unfolding and revealing his truth to us. He does that because he loves us. He does that because he loves us. He does that because he loves us. He loves us. And we worship him. We worship him. We worship him. We're not just in his presence for what we can get. We're worshiping him and in his presence because what we have received and what he freely gave. He's our God and there's none like him. He's our God and nobody can take his place. He's our God. He's our God. Those people who declare themselves atheists, He, he, Jesus, is our God. They don't have a, a loving father like we do. They don't have that. He loves us. We should be thankful for that. We should practice that thanksgiving every day. Like Matt said, we should practice praising. But it's not because we have a new car. I mean, you can thank him for a new car. I thank him for my old car that just runs like it's new. You know, it's just, thank him all the time for everything. There's nothing. When you wake up in the morning, your lips should be filled with praise and thanksgiving. Because of what you will receive that day. Because he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He's with you. He's with you. When you walk out that door, he's with you. When you're in that car, he's with you. When you go to your job or your school, he's with you. Always, always loving on you. Paul said, When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Because his glory and his presence just settles on me. Because I allow his presence and his strength to rest on me, that's when I'm strong. When I'm allowing his presence just to rest, on me when I'm engulfed in his presence all the time every day just thankful because he loves us he loves us